0: Hello, everyone. This is Jason Jacobs, and welcome to My Climate Journey. This show follows my journey to interview a wide range of guests to better understand and make sense of the formidable problem of climate change and try to figure out how people like you and I can help. Today's guest is Todd Allen, Chair and Professor of Nuclear Engineering and Radiological Sciences at University of Michigan. Todd is one of the top U.S. experts in nuclear energy with a focus on material science of nuclear systems. Todd began his professional career as a submarine officer in the U.S. Navy. Following active duty, Todd earned a Ph.D. in nuclear engineering, then joined Argonne National Laboratory, initially as a staff scientist, and ultimately on the leadership team tasked with developing the Generation 4 roadmap. Following Argonne, Todd joined the faculty at University of Wisconsin, where he split his time between establishing a premier material science program and supporting the Idaho National Laboratory, where he held a number of roles, ultimately leading the organization as Deputy Laboratory Director for Science and Technology. Todd's the author of over 200 technical publications, and given that I still had a bunch of questions about nuclear, I thought there was no better guest to bring on the show. We cover a lot in this episode, including... Todd's background, how he got into nuclear, the twists and turns of the nuclear industry over the last several decades, and those of Todd's career, and how those have intersected. We then go on to have a really pragmatic discussion, looking at each of the key areas where people typically have concerns about nuclear, and digging deep into each one of them, getting Todd's candid and honest thoughts. And I think his answers are are really thoughtful, so I definitely learned a lot. Finally, we talk about other factors like deregulation, when and why we did that, when and whether it was a mistake, the importance of a portfolio approach, and how it's detrimental to have religion about any one specific technology in the climate fight. And probably my favorite part is when I asked Todd if he was given the keys of the kingdom federally to help nuclear get deployed at scale more effectively, what would he do? Because I thought he really gave a dynamite answer. So without further ado, Here's Todd, Todd Allen. Welcome to the show. Thanks. Thanks for inviting me. Welcome to Third Way. It's a Third Way kind of day. I just recorded an episode with Josh Freed, and no rest for the weary. Now now I'm going right into this one, but I'm excited for it. Good, good. So I've talked to some people in the nuclear world, notably, notably Brett came on the podcast, who I know you know, Brett, Brett Kugelmass, but nobody that is anywhere near as experienced in nuclear as you. Yeah. Okay. All right. First time. Yeah. And it's an area where I've been spending some time. I mean, a fair bit of time, however much time with part of my time for seven months. So I know that's probably not much time in the grand scheme of things, but but a meaningful percentage of the portfolio looking at it, because as I've investigated deep decarbonization and what it'll take, it seems like we're sure going to need it. And it's a thorny one because there appears to be you know, consumer sentiment is against it and there's some, you know, p- political headwinds and, and and things like that and some concerns that seem like there might be some validity, but at the same time, it still seems like we're going to need it and that if you dig in relative to some of the consequences that come from, you know, burning a zillion tons of coal or, or things like that or or even car accidents or, or, you know, things that we put up with every day, right, then it, you have to ask why is it held to a higher standard, right? So, so I'm not up to speed on it. I have tons of questions, but I'm really excited to learn more about it and it's an important topic.
1: Yeah, absolutely. We can go through as much of it as you want. And you're spot on in the sense that the fact that we're having more and more serious discussions around climate change has brought a lot of people back into a nuclear discussion, right? I think for there are some people who will always feel there's no need, sort of tech evangelists that believe their technology is good enough. There are lots of people that haven't thought about it for years, right, or may not even know how much nuclear we actually use in the U.S., who are sort of agnostic or, or, or just unaware. And I find that, especially with students, younger generation, I meet tons of them that are like, we never get taught anything about nuclear in school. I understand it may be relevant to climate. Let's talk about it. And then you, of course, have some some folks who are in nuclear and they love it, and they'll they'll be just as tech evangelists as the people on the renewable side. And I, I think they're off, also off base, right? But you get that whole spectrum, but I actually think there's a large group in the middle that are willing to have a conversation that might not have 10 years ago.
0: You seem like an unflappable diehard. You've just been heads down doing your thing for all the way through and still going strong.
1: Well, you know, it's what's funny about it. I think it's you know sometimes you just make decisions when you're young and they work out right. So you know, I got into nuclear not because I had some strong connection to the technology. It was the Navy gave me an ROTC scholarship that's going to pay for my my college. Couldn't have, couldn't have gone to Northwestern without it. And once you get
0: belated congrats on yeah, that.
1: Yeah, yeah thanks. <laughs> but once you do that, right? They explain to you, you're you once you graduate, you're going to have to either be an airplane pilot a Marine Corps officer, drive surface ships or be on a submarine. And for whatever reason, being on a submarine seemed like the most interesting thing. But now that I've done that, right, I now start to understand that these things get driven around by nuclear power. Right, So I need to learn something about it. I actually had applied to college saying I wanted to be a computer science major and then got convinced as a freshman that I should be a nuclear engineer in the end. In some ways, it was a bad decision, right? Because... So many interesting things have gone on in computer science over the years and, you know who knows I may have been a rich computer science guy but at the same time the, the the interest in nuclear sort of comes and goes and I've actually dropped into some pretty cool opportunities because there wasn't that many of me around right so as an example when I got my first faculty job at Wisconsin when i was doing my phd so this is mid 90s bill clinton was the president he his administration did not like nuclear as a matter of fact they took the federal funding for research to zero lots of people that were getting their degrees about the same time as me just basically left the field but you know either through luck or or stubbornness i stayed in and now when faculty positions started to open up in the 2000s and faculty positions are normally pretty competitive there weren't that many you know people in my age group and now i'm in a position where universities, national labs, companies. They're all desperate for mid-careers because we lost it most of a generation. And so now I get lots of opportunities because I hung around in nuclear. So you know, sometimes it's, it's smart. Sometimes it's luck. Sometimes it just works out.
0: And what was the state of nuclear when you entered the field? So I
1: started as an undergrad in 1980. And so this was probably a transition point. So we were towards the end of this big build, right? So we went through three decades where we were building 30 commercial nuclear plants a year, pretty rapid rate of expansion. 78 is when Three Mile Island happened. A little bit before that, you started to get pushed back against commercial nuclear for various reasons. And so it was sort of at the beginning of the plateau.
0: Before Three Mile Island was nuclear celebrated, glorified, that point of national pride.
1: I think if you go back to sort of the 50s and 60s, it was the it technology, right? It was the sexy thing to go into, cutting edge technology. A lot of people were excited about it. I think the further you went on, it started to lose some of its luster. And by the time you got sort of into the 1990s, you had had built all the plants that we were going to build, or that we have built so far. That's 100-ish, slightly more than 100. It's 20% of the US electricity system is nuclear, which is more than a lot of people realize. 100 plants is the most that any country has built. We're not the largest percentage of electricity by nuclear, but most plants. And, you know, I think of it as the, the product had met its market. And so it, it stabilized. And so it, I think in the beginning, it was very, very exciting. People liked it. And I think over time, you started to get pushback from people who were worried a lot about connectivity to weapons programs. So the the India... Exploding their nuclear weapons in the '70s, and they did not separate their weapons complex from their commercial, made a lot of people very nervous. And that environment brought some political pushback. That's around the time we just decided we were not going to pursue commercial recycling or recycling of commercial fuel. And when you say exploded their
0: weapons, so like they ran a test, they, they had ran an a test accident. underground test, yeah, uh-huh. right.
1: So it was clear now that they had developed a nuclear weapons program and in the US we're very careful to separate weapons stuff from civilian stuff is it just like a figurative wall or what does that mean to separate meaning you for instance in the U- US and actually it's a it's an international standard now for commercial reactors that you design a nuclear power plant where you limit the enrichment right and if if I need to explain enrichment I I can but you you keep the uranium fuel In a state that is not weapons usable, right, you you do not design commercial plants to run on material that's weapons usable, right? You control who has the ability to do enrichment. So as an example, when the United Arab Emirates decided they were going to build four nuclear plants, they're in the end of the construction phase of that. They actually hired South Korean firms to build those. They agreed up front that they did not want enriched fuel and they would not enrich their own right? So they agreed to a set of standards that are set by the International Atomic Energy Agency that make it clear that this is a civilian-only program.
0: So I, I understand there might be regulations that prohibit them, or you know they, they agree as, as one of the requirements to, to not enrich, but what about the actual task of enriching? Is it hard? So it is complex technology.
1: In the early days, it was a diffusion process. So you would create a gas phase with uranium in it. Uranium There's different types of it that have different masses. Some of them are fissionable. We can use them for fuel and some aren't. And you run through these very long columns. And depending on how heavy they are, they'll drift with a different speed, right? And that allows you to separate things as you go through filters. Then in time, people changed it to a centrifuge type thing. Same thing with centrifuges. You spin them, right? The heavier stuff goes to the edge faster and you go through a series of these and you can eventually enrich. So it's technologically challenging. But people have figured it out. So when you read things about the Iranians, and the, the concern there is they have centrifuges. right? They have the ability to enrich. Um, what you would want, well, first you would hope that they didn't have their own enrichment capability, but the agreements and things were trying to keep them, keep them so that they were only enriching at levels that were useful for commercial plants but not for weapons. And when you read in the paper recently that they have started to enrich above certain levels, people are worried that they're enriching up to higher levels. So once you have the technology, it's possible. It's it's harder to go to very high levels,
0: but once you have that technology, you can do it. I've heard that if you take exporting, for example, that one of the arguments for not exporting is because people are afraid that the uranium will get into the wrong hands, but I've heard counterarguments that say that if you export you can have more control over the stipulations within which one can operate if they get the technology and if they're not going to get it from us they're going to get it from someone else and who knows what the stipulations will be if any from the person that they get it from
1: yeah right and so in the early days there were very few countries that that understood nuclear technology right so back when we made a lot of the rules about exports and and nonproliferation norms and things we were the vendor of choice the country that could supply nuclear technology to others. But now that's not the case, right? The Russians certainly have the ability to do it. The Chinese have the ability to do it. The Koreans, I said, are building other plants, although they're very tied to Western standards. So you know we, we trust them. But that that is the issue. So in, in the past, we would say, OK, if you want nuclear technology, we'll work with you. But we don't want you to enrich, meaning we'll sell you the fuel, for instance. But we, we do lose that control if they're going to go buy from the Russians or the Chinese.
0: It's true. It's a different world. And do you worry about the risk of uranium if gotten into the wrong hands being weaponized? Well, certainly.
1: But it's not it's not the fact that you have uranium. It's whether you have the ability to enrich it or produce weapons-usable material. And there's two ways to do that. One is enriching, which we've talked about. The other is there are, there is a way to put nuclear fuel into a reactor and transform it into plutonium then chemically separate that out and create a weapon. So there's two pathways, enrichment and and chemical separations of fuel. And so you try to make sure that countries don't use that. So the, our agreements over the years have been to try to say, we'll let you have nuclear technology, but we don't want you doing either of those two things. The Iranians, if I recall right, sort of developed it indigenously or with some help from Pakistan and once they had the centrifuges right now they're in the position to enrich their own
0: fuel and should we be more concerned about the state actors or the non-state actors
1: well i think up to now relative to enriching or making weapons material that's why it's been state actors because it's a it's a big complicated technological process it's not something you pull off in your backyard with the non-state actors most of the, more of the concern has been people who would who would do something like a ra- either somehow steal or buy on a black market somehow, weapons, usable materials. So when the Soviet Union fell apart, that was a big concern, is that as the country was breaking into little pieces, that the security would be lost and you'd get sort of black market materials out there. That's one concern. And the other is just people who want to do a radiological device. Like a dirty a, bomb. A dirty bomb, and you want to, yeah, do it that way rather than a weapon.
0: So that was a tangent. So we, it, was a go, it was a great one, but it was a, it was a tangent. So, so you were starting to say that the first thing people started to become concerned with was the risk of the blending of the source of energy and source of weapons. Yep. So that was one concern, right? I think there's been a long-term discussion
1: on do we have a disposal pathway for the used fuel when it comes out of the reactor. So Waste. Waste.
0: Yep. which is a word apparently that is debatable about whether it's actually waste, right? Right. So there's there's actually and
1: there's multiple classifications of waste also. So the fuel, right, is one classification. And in the U.S., our pathway for many years was a place called Yucca Mountain. It's in Nevada, and the Department of Energy spent many tens of millions of dollars, hundreds of millions of dollars, studying this. It's never opened. As they were studying it and submitting the case to the regulator, so this thing has to be approved by the Nuclear Regulatory Commission, independent regulator, because the US government said decided that they were going to be responsible for spent fuel. So industry is not responsible for its own waste. The government said they would take it on. The Department of Energy became essentially the customer who was trying to get this repository approved. Why did they say that, do you think, the government? Well, so you go back to the early days of nuclear power and people were convinced that uranium, right, the starting point for all this, was a very rare, hard-to-find mineral, and that there was no way you were going to be able to do commercial nuclear power if you didn't recycle. When you build a fuel pin for a reactor, it's, just, it's uranium dioxide pellets inside a metal tube. You run it through the reactor in two-year cycles. Each fuel rod's in there for about six years. At the end of that time when you pull it out, you still have approximately 97.5% of the energy left in the rod. You're not pulling it out because you've used all the fuel. It's because the fuel gets contaminated with things that make it less useful, and the tube that it's held in starts to degrade. Right. So in the early days, people thought, well, uranium's scarce. So we'll have to take these fuel rods, recycle them, and then blend them into in new fuel rods, and then go forward. So we had a lot of programs in the U.S. that were looking at recycling, commercial size demonstrations starting up. But then around the 19, late 1970s, soon after this Indian atomic weapon explosion that I mentioned, we had at this point figured out that there's, there's a lot of uranium out there, right? Mining companies and stuff had gone out. They found it. So scarceness of fuel resource is not an issue. People were worried that as part of recycling, that people would... Alter the chemical process to pull out weapons-usable material and therefore create a weapons program or possibility for weapons program only because you're recycling. So at that point, the government said, well, we don't want commercial recycling because we're worried. We want to set an example for other countries that you don't tie anything that might lead to weapons to a commercial process. Uranium's not scarce. And so we, the government right, will now take on the responsibility to get rid of the waste. And they did. And then from that point on, they're now trying to license this underground repository. Every step they made, or as far as they had gotten, the regulator had said, so far, it looks like you're making the technical case for using this mound to dispose of the fuel. They never got to the end. There were still questions that they had to answer, but they were making progress. But the state of Nevada always hated felt that the decision to use their mountain had been forced on them, right? That they, at the time that it was made, they didn't have a strong delegation in the federal government. And so when you got to the beginning of the Obama administration, at this point, Harry Reid is very powerful, Senator from Nevada, and he, he and the administration were together and they said, we're not gonna pursue that pathway anymore. And they stopped giving the Department of Energy any money to study this. So now you've got no one pursuing a repository in the US. And the regulator itself, they're a safety regulator. So they, they can't do anything with this. They have to wait for somebody to come to them with a product.
0: So where had the waste been going all the time before that? So it's it sits at every one of the plants. So it's just been in casks.
1: Right. So what you do is when you take it out of the reactor, it sits in big water pools for a mm-hmm. while until it cools down enough. And then you put it into a big concrete and steel cask that sits on a pad outside of the reactor. And that's, that's where it sits in the U.S.
0: Now- When we were doing that in the U.S. before Yucca Mountain, what was the thought in terms of the long-term solution before the Yucca Mountain discussion started?
1: Well, the the thought in the beginning was that you would recycle. Although I should say, even when you recycle, you do still have a a nuclear waste stream that would have needed an underground repository like Yucca Mountain. So we were going to need one no matter what. It's just a question of how much. If you recycle, it takes a lot longer to fill up the repository than if you don't. So there was always a thought that the, the fuel would come out of the reactor, cool down in these pools, and then in the beginning, get recycled. But once we even stopped planning to do that, it was it would go to Yakaman once it opened. Originally, people thought it would open in the 80s, and it kept getting delayed. And it wow, still so this has. played out over like decades. Yeah, it has a decade-long discussion. Right? And it's not impossible to cite a repository. If you go over to Finland, right? Finland has a nuclear power program. And they have a repository, or they're building the repository. But they've approved it, and they know the pathway. And I think in the U.S. it is, a, is as much a political process problem as a technology one. Right? So you look now, Finland solved it. That's one end of the spectrum. The Canadians were sort of following the U.S. model and not having much success at getting a repository located. And they backed off and said, let's, let's change the approach. Let's go for what they call, call a consent-based process. Let's go out and ask communities. Is there anyone that would be willing? to be the host for those things, right? I mean, you get you get financial reimbursement, right? and there are, there are benefits, and the community has to decide. Whatever risk of hosting, hosting a repository, is it worth us being the host? And interestingly, in that process, the Canadians still have communities that are in the discussion, right? And they appear to be on a pathway to opening a repository. So one of the things the Obama administration did when they stopped funding the Yucca Mountain studies is they commissioned something called the Blue Ribbon Commission, And one of their recommendations was try a consent-based approach. But we are still sort of stuck in the US. We have certain members of Congress that feel, look, we've spent, whatever, $30 billion on this thing. We need to finish that site and don't want to have a conversation about anything else. You have others that feel, well, why don't we try this consent-based process? You've got communities in New Mexico and Texas right now who have raised their hands, essentially, and said, Will be an interim storage site. It's not underground, but we'll take all this stuff from the hundred sites. What's motivating them to do that? It's, I think it's financial, right? So we were talking about repositories and everything with Yucca Mountain. It's the repository for the the used fuel, right? There is other kinds of nuclear related waste, defense waste, right? And this is like gloves, clothing that you'd wear, wrenches. We have a repository in New Mexico that's been taking this stuff year. So it's not impossible to open a repository. We've just never done one for the fuel.
0: So waste is essentially now, at least in the US, an unsolved problem? That's why I say there's different classifications of waste. The fuel is an
1: unsolved problem. Defense waste, lower levels of radioactivity, those types of waste, we do have places where we're, we're sending the waste. And those lower levels include things like the, the, the radioactive waste that comes out of hospitals, for instance. So it's just the... Just the spent fuel.
0: And the spent fuel, what's the situation there with the, you know, with the water and the cask? How long do we have? So the casks are licensed for hundred I think it's about eighty or hundred year
1: periods. I don't remember. So it's it's multiple decades. And if you had to, you could go back and ask the regulator to re to to reevaluate the technical stability of your cask, and they might let you extend the life. Or you might have to take it out of the cask and put it in a new one. I mean, you could could do this. The cask is perfectly safe. It's just not a very great long-term solution. Why not? Well, because you, A, the communities, for instance, that have no reactor have just this fuel just sitting there and they're getting no economic value. They can't use the land. They'd like it gone. And they were promised that it'd be gone. I think that's one. It doesn't use much land though, right? It doesn't use much land at all. Yeah, as as a simple mental metric, if you took all of the spent fuel from all of the 100 plants for the 40 issues that we've been running them and you stacked it all in one place which we wouldn't do but if you did it would fit in a football field which if you think of that compared to watching rail cars of coal go down the the tracks it's a very very small volume right it's actually the 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 beauty and the difficulty with nuclear power right you get if you compare one nuclear fission the energy you get from fission to one burning of one coal atom, what you do in a fossil plant. Nuclear, you're getting millions of times more energy from that single reaction. The nice thing about that is you need way less fuel to get the same amount of power. So the total amount of mining, the total amount of waste associated with it, volume, is very small. But it is highly radioactive, and it will be for years. And so you need to find out engineered ways to to control that and make sure that the radioactivity does not spread where you don't want it to be.
0: So if political will were no issue and you were just looking at the optimal solution and you could get whatever solution, you know, you could wave a magic wand and get whatever solution implemented that you wanted, what is the right solution with those idyllic circumstances for waste?
1: Well, I'll, just, I'll use the fin- finished one as an example, right? One of the things when you're, you're putting waste into an underground repository is you need, you need to answer some questions. Does water flow through that part of the mountain? you would prefer not to have water coming through because then you have the potential for rust, All right, So there's a big geology question. The waste that I mentioned, we have a repository in New Mexico that takes care of defense waste. It's essentially is a salt cavern. And salt has this property that it creeps, slowly deforms. So you put waste in there, and over time the salt slowly compresses around and surrounds the waste. It doesn't allow water to come through. It's very stable. And that's sort of the approach in Finland. They've got the right geography, They've got the right canister things. And so it's possible for them to have defined a repository that makes sense. And they've got a – the Finnish seem to be very good at having these community-wide discussions. It's a smaller country where they sort of get together and make decisions and figure out a pathway to do this. And then
0: given the political landscape, what's the right solution?
1: I firmly believe you have to go consent-based. You have to go out and figure out a community that that wants to be the host of this, that finds value in it. That's the only – Approach that I've seen that works, you know, worked in Finland, seems to be working in Canada, seems to be working in Sweden.
0: And for the community that wants value, would that be in casks, or what would that be in? How would that be implemented? Well, yeah, well, the idea is it would show up in a in
1: a cask that you've designed that makes sense for the conditions, you know, underground, and that would be, it'd be placed there, and they would be reimbursed somehow, right? The government owns this problem, so they would pay the community to be the hosts to continually monitor it over time, so. Long term it's helping with I guess. I I don't I don't know that I've seen the details in Canada and exactly what they're talking about. But you know, the assumption is that there's there's something that helps your tax base, that helps your schools.
0: But I don't don't want to pretend that I know all those details. Mm-hmm. And, and if that program were rolled out, would you advocate that your town be part of it? If I was in a place that had the the right geology for it, yeah, sure.
1: You know, as an example, these these casts that we're talking about, you and I could walk right up to them. Right. It is it, it we do know how to shield radiation fuel. It's a solid, right? It's it's not green flowing goo, right? We know where it is, we can keep track of it. It's just you're talking about a you know, thousand year ish problem. And it's just it's easier to conceptualize finding an underground scenario that's very stable geologically compared to those time frames and putting it there rather than having to keep paying attention to it, you know, above the ground the way we're doing it right now.
0: Okay, so nuclear was the bell at the ball, and then people started getting concerned about the potential for it to be, you know, to get into the wrong hands and be weaponized, and and then people started getting concerned about, well, what are we going to do with the waste? And this Yucca Mountain played out in this, you know, torturous, frustrating, debilitating, decades-long thing that's still not resolved. What else? I think beyond that, the energy demand in the U.S. leveled off. So we
1: weren't even in a position where we need to build a lot of new plants. I think in recent years, us figuring out how to frack has made natural gas extraction and therefore production of electricity with natural gas really cheap.
0: Got it. So it's not necessarily that nuclear became less attractive. It's just that natural gas got a lot more attractive. Yeah. Which then made nuclear look less attractive relative to natural gas. Correct. Strictly from a cost standpoint. Right.
1: Yeah. And then in renewable space, when I'm young, the story is wind and solar will never be cost effective, right? It's, it was you know the, the sort of common thought was that well, that'll never, that'll never happen, right? But over the course of the Obama administration, they, they did some things that I think were really smart, right? They've continued to do research, to sort of build a better product. They also pushed things like renewable portfolio standards where you said we're going to buy a minimum amount, or we're going to insist that a minimum amount of these new products, purchase. And I think that encourages commercial competition, drives costs down. And so in the last 10 years or so, the costs of solar panels, right, cost wind, really dropped a lot. And so you've got cheap natural gas, you've got renewables that are, you know, cost competitive, in some cases with subsidies, in some cases without. It's totally changed the, the electricity markets. And so, and the other thing is, for years, and in, in a regulated utility, you could build an big nuclear plant, and you've agreed ahead of time with the Public Service Commission that you're going to get X rate of return on your investment, right? So you knew you're not going to get a huge return, but you're going to get steady returns, and therefore building a big nuclear plant made sense. In that environment, you can take, you know, five years, 10 years to build your plant because you're going to make money over 80. We started deregulating markets in the U.S. starting around the 1990s, and in some places, the competitive pressures were very different. And so, you know, all these things, I think, have affected... The economics of nuclear, and we've actually started to lose a few of the first generation plants. So we we had 104. I think we're about 98ish now, or so, depending on where they are and how the local market determines how you make money. Some of those plants have been threatened. Some of them have shut down. Was deregulation a mistake? I don't think so. I think the the cons. In, you know, in some ways, it it's definitely driven prices down. We never really actually fully deregulated, right? I mean. The, part of the problem, right? We still have lots of preferential treatment for things. And you see you see that all the time. But in general, right? We've we've dropped prices in a lot of places. That's good for the consumer. But it has made cost sort of the sole metric. Right? And I think that's why the climate change discussion is important. as sort of helped bring nuclear back into it because people are saying, if cost is the only issue, we can just go 100% natural gas. But then is that good for the climate? Is it good for resilience of the system? Right. What, if, what if you get rid of all your coal plants, all your nuclear plants, and you're just running on gas, and then gas gets expensive for some reason, right? Fracking gets hard, or we decide we want to make fracking harder because we discover something about it that we don't like. So I, I worry about a, any system where you think that a single energy-producing technology is going to be sufficient on its own, because I don't think any of them is perfect.
0: And so when nuclear was the bell to ball way back when, were people concerned about safety at that time? I think in the early days, they didn't know much about it. I think as time
1: went on, you have an event like Three Mile Island, you have an event like Chernobyl, people get more concerned about safety of the plants. We actually, I mean, if you look in the US, we've had one major accident in all that time, Three Mile Island, they just destroyed a plant and there wasn't much radiological consequences outside of it. I think people naturally worry much more about a low-frequency, potentially high-effect event like a nuclear accident, even though you talk to risk specialists and they'll say, you calculate the risk, nuclear plants are very, very safe, I think they still make people nervous, right? Even though you look at the numbers and you're more likely to die by getting in your car and driving to work.
0: Uh-huh, because, because although it might happen incredibly infrequently, especially relative to other kinds of safety things, if it ever happens, it's really horrific. Yeah, or it could be, right? I mean, if you look at Chernobyl, if you happen to watch Chernobyl, I'm um, three episodes in.
1: Three episodes in, okay. But you get that you get the point, right? In this, in this case, the the combination of the reactor design and the way they operated it and the way they responded to the emergency were horrible. You know, we've never really done something like that in the U.S., but you know, that's that's the kind of thing people worry about. But the sense I'm getting from you is that that worry
0: statistically
1: is overblown. Yeah, I think that's true. I've seen tons of calculations that say nuclear plants are actually safe. And for somebody who grew up in it too and understands the technology, right? My first job, I was on a nuclear submarine, right? So I sort of learned it as a first job, and so I'm pretty comfortable with the technology.
0: I haven't had a chance to talk to him to get specifics, but I said basically what you just said to a friend of mine and who's not in nuclear but does work elsewhere in the climate fight, and he said, well, you wouldn't feel that way if you grew up in Southern California, you know, around... And I don't know the details. There's like a plant there and and so like the NIMBYism and the, I I mean NIMBYism in, in itself is a loaded term because it, it sounds derogatory, right? But the but the the people that feel that way, I mean, is there something that either is specific to nuclear or that's specific to Southern California that I don't know about that, that it that is valid or where does that come from?
1: Yeah. I think there's a certain amount of local culture to it. So some of the people that like nuclear plants the best are the ones that live next to them and operate them. Right, so in the you, U.S. in the U.S. Yeah, so you go visit these communities. Most of the nuclear plants we placed are more out in the country rather than next to a city. But I think it's very cultural, and I'll use the example of Finland and Germany. Right, they're not right next to each other. The Finns are very comfortable with nuclear power; they use it routinely, and the Germans have decided to get rid of every single plant. And so I don't think that there's this natural: if I live near it, I'm nervous about it, because some of the biggest advocates are the ones that live near these plants. Now it's where they're it's where they work; they know it. Right, it's where they're they're Family and friends were, and so I think it's not. There's not this. I I don't think there's a single distance from the plant argument that says if you're if you're close to it, you're more nervous than not. I think there's other local factors that that drive it. And my guess is in in, in California, right, more of the discussions are around. Well, we could just use solar and wind and things like this, right? And that's what you get comfortable with
0: that discussion. But I, I think it's it's more community history and culture. And it it seems like in some parts of the world, there's actually been meaningful progress on nuclear from a cost standpoint in terms of deploying multiple plants and the economics getting more favorable as more plants get built and things like that. Whereas in the US, it seems like things have gone the opposite way, is that true? And if so, why? It's true recently. So like anything, if if you build the
1: same thing over and over again, you get better at it. So for instance, when I mentioned that the Koreans won the contract to build the four plants in the United Arab Emirates, if you look at the Korean history, the cost per plant has dropped. Right? In the US, if you look in the early days, we did a lot of one-off plants. Each utility would say, oh, here's what I want. And they'd get a custom-built nuclear plant from Westinghouse, from combustion engineering, whoever it was. And so we, unlike the French, who limited their designs and built a whole bunch of plants you know, repetitively over time, and they drove their cost curve down. So, you know, Jessica Lovering from the Breakthrough Institute did a really nice paper a couple of years ago that basically showed in those cases where you were building one-offs, you weren't learning from experience of building, you never got the construction costs under control. And the plants we're building in Georgia right now, the Vogel plants, the first ones we've tried to build in decades, and we're doing horribly at it. Right? We, we clearly have lost the ability to do it quickly. But I look at other countries that have had continuous build processes. And they've been able to, to bring the costs down. Right? Chinese are figuring out how to do it right now. And they're the ones that are building
0: the most plants in the world. So do you think it's a requirement that if we want nuclear to be a meaningful contributor to our energy composition in the US, that we bring the cost down significantly? Well, I do think we need to, just to be competitive. Now, where that bar
1: is depends on things like, will we start to put a cost on carbon?
0: Do we need one for nuclear to be competitive?
1: I think it depends on the local market and the way you do it. But it certainly seems right now, the the reason I hedge a little bit is because we've got all these entrepreneurs all thinking they've got a new type of nuclear product they're going to build. They're going to have to be cost competitive with gas right right now. And right now, we're not putting a cost on carbon, which makes gas really cheap. And so I do think that the, the entire nuclear community does need to be working on bringing the costs down, whether that's different designs, whether that's better construction processes. I'm not convinced we're gonna build, that we need to or will build a ton of gigawatt size plants like we did in the 70s. We just don't have the demand curve for it. And if you're gonna build a bunch, it's maybe a different product that's either aimed at high temperature heat, it's smaller electricity generation, but ones that you can build multiple units of. But but certainly bringing the costs down are gonna be important. But as I said, where where the bar is depends on how far you can bring down the cost of renewables and what we do with carbon prices, and does gas stay cheap forever? But it certainly looks right now it's going to be cheap for a long
0: time. And if the phone rang, and it was the president of the United States, except one that actually cared about the planet and believed in science, and he or she said, hey, Todd, we've got a job for you. We've looked at the math every which way, and we don't see any scenario where we're not going to need nuclear to be a meaningful contributor. Like We don't think it can run the table. Nothing can run the table, but it's all hands on deck. And we're going to need it. So your job is to do what it takes to write the ship and get nuclear deployed at scale in America. And you know, you you've got three skeleton keys that can change anything to in the system to make that happen most effectively. What would you do? So this is a president. I'm going to assume that you're asking me for what I would do as a federal response.
1: Okay, that's a good question. The first thing I would do is I would rebalance the way the federal government spends money on nuclear technology. I read this thing that was eye-opening for me a few years back. It was a 65-year history of where the federal government spends money in all sorts of energy technologies. And what is fascinating from nuclear compared to the others is that the nuclear bin was almost all R&D. Right? Every other bin, it was a combination of R&D and then things that would incentivize commercial competition. It's tax credits. It's portfolio standards. It's things where you are saying, we are going to buy right, electricity using this system. And nuclear never did that. If you look at the history of nuclear, the original plants came out of designs that the Navy created. We sort of transitioned those to commercial. And then there was this long period where we did lots of R&D led by the Department of Energy National Lab System. Great researchers, but they're not business people. Right? And we never really created a new commercial product. So the first thing I'd do is I'd look at the way we spend money in the federal government and say, it's not going to be all R&D. Right? Second thing i do is I'd look at all the things we did to bring the cost of wind and solar down, and I would try to replicate a nuclear version. Right, So I would say, we're going to buy nuclear to use in federal facilities, right, places where the government's already spending money on electricity right? And, but I'm not going to pick. I'm not going to say, here's the government chosen design. I'm going to take advantage of the fact that starting five-ish years ago, we've suddenly got now 75 or so privately funded entrepreneurial nuclear companies all have got their own design. Let them compete. Let them compete for these fixed purchases, right, that the government says it's going to do. Try to drive the prices down just like we did with wind and solar. And since I'm somebody that thinks we do need to control carbon. I'd push to get a, a carbon tax or a combination of carbon tax and clean energy portfolio standards or things that, that push us towards less use of fossil fuels, unless you can figure out how to do carbon capture economically. Right? You I, could I, do it.
0: I was going to ask you about that because you know I've talked to some guests that have come on and they've said that hey, natural gas in itself it emits yeah, but but with Carbon capture not only can it be an effective bridge, but it could be an effective long-term solution. It could, right? It
1: could. But the problem is, is, is like a lot of things. It's how do you economically capture all that carbon? Because we burn a lot of fossil fuels, right? This is this is why I'm a. Uh, I think you use the term "all hands on deck." I I just think it's going to be a combination of things. Because I can mentally project for energy, any energy technology, why it's impossible to do, right? Is this your pep talk? Yeah, it, it, <laughs> it kind of is, right? Uh, it, it, it's uh, and it's you know, maybe impressive mean, I'm pep talk. Pragma- pragmatic Midwestern engineer, right? But it's like people will say, yeah, well, nuclear it's impossible for x x reasons, right? But but they all are. Right? If you really look at the numbers involved in driving carbon down to the extent that we want. And you you mentioned Brett Kugumus at the beginning and he points out very rarely, you kind of want to get the stuff that you already Put up there, out too, without yeah. adding new carbon it, right? So this is a huge challenge, and I look at anything. So, you know, I've seen calculations that Jesse Jenkins, he's up at Harvard, switching to Princeton, he's got a new faculty position. To these calculations that show with interme- intermittent resources like wind and solar, uh, at a certain point because they're variable, you try to exceed X percent, and the the cost starts going up, right? Because you're paying for a lot of unused capacity. So you look at that and you say, well, that or maybe it's Maybe it's just the amount of transmission lines you're gonna have to build to do 100% wind and solar. You're know, like, how could I ever do that, right? Same thing, you know, you say, oh, how could you possibly build nuclear? No one will ever do that, there's a waste problem. People are worried about these plants. And you just project every one of them to the end point, and it, it makes it impossible. But if we're gonna have a serious conversation about climate and clean energy, then you have to figure out how to sort of use the best of each. And so that's why I, I'm fairly convinced that there will be some nuclear future. Now what it looks like, I think, depends on how these entrepreneurial nuclear companies do. Because I'm a big fan of letting them compete sort of in commercial space, which is very different from what we've done in the past, which was the government picking something and saying, this is what we're going to do. Partly because the government changes its mind with each election and then we stop doing that thing and we never actually make any progress. And second, because I'm a researcher. I'm not good at
0: figuring out how to drive a commercial product. Right? I don't know how to do it. And what are your thoughts on what we should do with the existing light water fleet? So run them as long as you can,
1: right? There is a process with the regulator where you can go in and you can make the argument that the material condition of the plant is fine. There's no safety issues associated with it. Or that component could be a problem, but I know that and I'm going to replace it. So it'll be brand new. And as long as you can do that economically, you can keep running the plant. There's only a couple components in a plant that are so big that they're not replaceable. Right, so they're already in existence. They're already, you know, just short of sixty percent of the clean electricity we use right now. So I'd say keep them going as long as you can.
0: So, and you said as long as you can do them economically. What if yeah. you can't do them economically?
1: Well, then we're going to get into this whole debate about how much zero carbon are we going to shut down? Mm-hmm. Right. I mean, there, and there's there's good examples of of doing it right and doing it wrong. Right? I don't know if you've ever found it. There's a there's an online map that'll show you the CO two emissions for every country in Europe real time, and then they've extended the map to to North America also. You look at that map, and green means low carbon, and the carbon heroes are France, Sweden, and and Norway. And why? It's a combination of nuclear and and hydro. Germany, which everyone thinks is is a carbon hero because they've done sort of dramatic things to put as much wind and solar on the grid as they can, but at the same time, they decided to shut down their nuclear plants and they don't show up as green. They flatline their carbon. They're actually using more coal than they did before. And so you know, the metric has to be carbon, not how much nuclear or how much wind or how much solar. And so I actually just forgot why we got, I got off on that speech.
0: <laughs> oh, yeah. You know, you, you you got up. We'll see if I remember. I asked you, what should we do with the light water plants that are not economical?
1: Yeah. And I think that, you know, we've already lost a few. And I think people are recognizing that. And you see states like... Jersey, Illinois, that are saying for purposes of clean energy, in the same way that we had portfolio standards and other things for renewables, we're going to take specific policy-based approaches to keep them
0: running. Where does advanced nuclear fit into all of this? I think we're at this
1: inflection point, right? You try to keep the existing light water reactors running as long as you possibly can. With advanced, there are so many possibilities, right? Because some of these plants are still thinking big electricity. Some of them are thinking big electricity, but in a different way. So new scale says, instead of me selling you one big plant that's going to take me five to 10 years to build, I'm going to sell you almost the same amount of electricity, but I'm going to bid it into smaller modules, right? And so the business case there is you build the first module. Now you start selling electricity and making some money while you're building the incremental ones. You can add them as you need them. Whereas with the other plant, you're going to have to wait till it's online before you start selling anything. Right? And so if interest rates change or construction gets delayed, you're paying the bank back, but you're not making any money. So there's a business model that New Scale has tried to create. That's different. And there's other possible advantages to it. Right, Their plant, they say, well, if you're trying to load follow, you're not now necessarily taking one giant plant up and down, but you could maybe divide it in your modules. They don't have to shut down the entire plant to refuel because they can refuel by module. Right? Now, whether new scale—I mean, I use this as an example because they put a lot of thought into this. Whether they're the winner, I don't know. There are other companies that are just saying, I, "I think the the right thing is something that's about, you know, one five hundredth the size of a commercial plant. The small ones matter, right? They'll be easier to deploy because people won't be as intimidated by them. They will make sense for a defense base that just wants secure power in case they lose the grid. They make sense in northern communities. I said they, sh- they may make sense in northern communities that have no grid, have no pipeline, truck in diesel before winter hits, and don't want diesel. Right? And you've got all these different ideas out there, all sort of competing. Now, which one wins? I don't know. It's the one that sort of comes up with the best business case and figures out where the, where the customers are and who they can sell them to. But that's why I have some, some hope for advanced nuclear because it's not a single thing. It's driven by hopefully if we don't interfere with it it's driven
0: by allowing commercial competition to happen right to let the sort of the best ideas rise up and in terms of driving costs out of what we've got and making it more small and modular versus science risk when it comes to molten salt or things like that is it is it one or the other is it both
1: yeah i think anything that drives the cost down works right and here's another example where i think the the companies are being smart in a commercial sense so if you had gone back and talked to somebody in the national labs about molten salt reactors, they would say they're very researchy, very hard to deploy, because in most reactors, you hold everything in a metallic component. And when they touch the coolant, they, they oxidize, right? You get a little bit of corrosion on the surface. But if your corrosion is stable and non-penetrable, then you get that little bit, and it protects the metal, and you're fine. That's not what happens in salt. Salt, the chemistry is that you cannot form an oxide, right? The the fluorine that the salt is primarily composed of will actually cause elements of the metal to want to dissolve into it. So people said, well, it's a 60-year corrosion problem, right? That's super hard. But some of the companies out there are like, well, let's not think of it as a 60-year corrosion problem. Let's try to design modules and we'll only run them for 7 to 10 years. Right? So instead of trying to solve what seems to be an unmanageable problem from a research standpoint, this is, this is the difference between like researchers trying to figure this out and and business people trying to figure it out, right? The researchers say, "Okay, I need money to research to figure out how to control corrosion for 60 years in flooring conditions." Business people say, "I'm going to figure out how to try to do this economically where I don't I don't worry about that, right? I'm just going to build modules that that I take out a commission. Maybe I refurbish them. I don't, I don't know where they're going to end up, right? But it's a it's a different approach. And a lot of it is not just technology, but it's technology and business models. And, and I don't think that
0: the nuclear community was doing that before. And how big a role do you think culture plays if you think about the culture of the nuclear industry today? Is it healthy? Is it where it needs to be? If so, what makes you think that way? If not, where is it missing the mark?
1: No, I, th- I think the, the culture of the industry itself is good. I mean, we have we've learned how to run nuclear plants. We're very disciplined about it. Um, you know, as an example, I forget who I was talking to, but I read a, a book. It's a great author, by the way. His name is Atul Gawande, but he's a he's a surgeon. And he wrote this book called The Checklist Manifesto, and he was basically saying, "Look, um, we make mistakes as surgeons. We f- we leave gauze in people, right? We forget to do steps because we're relying just on people's." memory and their smartness and he was making the argument they really need checklists be disciplined right you know you 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 count in and you count out every single piece of God these these kind of things well his inspiration was the nuclear community because right? that's what nukes have learned to do. Because you're trying to operate big, complex machines, and you want to do them in a disciplined way. And I can't remember where it happened in Chernobyl, but I think by episode three, right, those guys were running a test on a piece of marked-up paper. They weren't sure which steps were valid, which weren't. Like, That's not the way the nuclear industry works in the West. And so I think we're very disciplined. I think we've gotten very good at running the plants. We have like 90-plus percent availability. We don't shut them down because we've got a problem with the plant. And you go back 20, 30 years and we were operating them two thirds of the time. All right? We've extended the life of fuel. And so we run the plants really well. And we run them in a disciplined way. So I think that's that's a positive with the nuclear community. I think some of the things that the nuclear community does wrong is I don't think they I don't think they tout their product very well. As an example, and it's weird because I it never occurred to me as a nuclear technologist that we were doing this until somebody from the outside pointed it out to me. But like nukes got convinced that the things that people worried about and the reason they might not want to buy nuclear were safety, waste. Right? And so every time they would talk about a new nuclear product, they would they would say, Well, look, we've made it safer or maybe less waste. But they just they drove the cost up. And by constantly talking about it, it just made people more nervous. I like, was like, why are you guys talking about it all the time? So now my my sort of way to try to get my my colleagues to think about this is like, imagine that we are set up on a blind date, right? And the way it's going to work is we can talk to each other on the phone once a night, but the date is one week away, okay? So each night I call you on the phone and I say at the end of the call, and I just want to assure you, right, that the acne has cleared up, right? Like, by the time we meet each other, like, what are you imagining? You're going to imagine I've got the worst acne. But but we did that, right? Like And no other industry does that, right? Like, Boeing certainly thinks about, or Airbus, you know, they think about safety and how to make the plane run. But you never hear, like, a Boeing advertisement that says Boeing 737. You buy it because we're 10% less likely to crash than the old version, right? But... We got in the habit of doing that. Right? And so I think part of the thing that the community has to learn is lead with your advantages. Be ready to talk about safety. Be ready to talk about how disciplined you run the plants. But why, why, why would somebody want to buy these? It's clean electricity. It's jobs in your community. Right. So I think that's the the things we don't do. But I think this is becoming more visible to the nuclear community. Right? That if you're if you're gonna expect people to buy your product you have to talk about the the advantages of the product, right, and not just how you're fixing the things that they worry about.
0: Yeah, I mean the the two things that I've heard a bunch as I've just kind of made the rounds. I mean I've heard a number of other things, but we've, many of them we've already covered. But I I mean I hear I hear things like it'll never be cost competitive with you know with with renewables, and I I hear that you know rationally there's a case, but the public has spoken. Like people don't want it. There's too much headwind. It'll never happen.
1: Yeah, and so I would say, if I go back 20 years, everyone would say, renewables, they'll never, ever be cost competitive with with the stuff that we were using then, with coal, with gas, with nuclear. And that it was wrong, right? We figured out ways to drive the costs down in the technology. And I, I think we've never gone through that same exercise with nuclear, right? It, it grew up in a time when it was publicly regulated utilities, right? You, you could get permission to build this plant. You knew you were going to make money back on it you never you never had to compete. But as we deregulated with those existing light water reactors, they've gotten much, much better at running those plants, right? And so there is there's a way to bring the costs down. We've proved it. We haven't proved it with new construction. So I you know, I don't buy the argument that nuclear could never be cost competitive. It just makes no sense to me. And I'm not even sure on the public, right? Because I know communities that host nuclear and they're fine with it. They're quite comfortable with it. And the other thing I've noticed is that as you're starting to have this conversation around advanced nuclear. People are willing to get into a, con- a conversation because they think it might be different in some way. Right? They might not know why, but they're willing to think that it's the like technology- New Coke. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> that, that's a bad example. It's a bad I example. <laughs> <laughs> I still remember when that came out. I should have like
0: saved some, right? Because it became a collector's <laughs> item so fast. But- so f- for anyone out there that's listening, I mean, they might be a nuclear insider or some other area of climate or- something totally different. But after hearing this, they're intrigued and want to see nuclear get its fair shake. What should they do? How can they help?
1: Yeah. So I think a few things. I think the bigger argument is not nuclear or not nuclear. The bigger argument is climate, right? And so I, I would hope folks would, in a way that you have sort of dug in, right, is to go out and figure out what that means and how hard it is to actually do something about it and sort of learn to count how we make carbon, how we could avoid carbon. I think that that's bigger than anything. I think if you do that, you'll come in to the conversation about nuclear at least a little more believing that you need to consider it, so I think that's one. I think if you don't know much about nuclear technology, I would recommend you not start by talking to a nuclear engineer, right? Because they will bog you down in so many details right away that you'll get lost. But I do think that, you know, you're here visiting Third Way today. Third Way put out a lot of things to try to simplify the narrative around it, I'd start, start somewhere there, the people that are trying to to get at it from a very non-technologist level. And then I think, you know, in the US at least, many things are not controlled at the federal, federal level right now. A lot of energy decisions are at the state or regional level. And so you can get involved. And I think it's interesting that I know a guy from TVA, and I was at a meeting and he was sort of talking and he said, you know, one of the reasons why we, we end up deploying a lot of renewables in TVA is because our customers come and demand it. Right, they don't come and say, "Dear TVA, please give us X gigawatts." They say, "Give us X gigawatts of solar." That's what we want, or X gigawatts of wind. And so, I do another thing is I think there are not people demanding from the utilities a certain component of nuclear. That one might take a while to happen, right? But if people were really interested, you could. Right, it's the, they will respond to what customers want.
0: This is a random thought, but I I I talked to someone this morning who is a recently graduated PhD who's part of, I'm going to get the acronym wrong, but I think it's like AAAS or something. It's a fellowship program where they deploy the, the, it's almost like a substitute for a postdoc where they take these PhDs and put them like, in congressional offices, or in NGOs, or in places where they can essentially be a translator between the science. And so, is there anything like that for nuclear, or do they participate in that program? They do. So, the American
1: Nuclear Society, a lot of other societies, then partner with AAAS, right, to put the fellows in. So, they get the acronym right, AAAS. Yeah, you did. That's yeah. what yeah. I said. Yeah. So, the, the nukes, the the nukes do, but it's one a year. It's not a lot of people, and some of those people have been have parlayed that into very successful careers in in policy politics and policy.
0: It's not a ton. But but I mean, it seems like it's really needed because your point about communication. And I mean, one of the things with the AAS fellows, I'm told is is that communication is a top priority. They're looking for people who, you know, can speak well with the outsiders, right? Yeah, and, right. and so roaming the halls of Congress, talking to legislators and, and translating in ways that they can understand, seems like it's really important. You know, to my outsider, uneducated, you know, from the cheap seats.
1: Yeah. Well, the, the, other, the other way, I think you're right, right? So one thing that I noticed, so I was at the University of Wisconsin on the faculty for a little over 10 years. Then I got an opportunity to go back to be the deputy lab director at Idaho, spend a year here at Third Way. So now I go back to Wisconsin. So there's a four-year gap. And I noticed right away there was a difference in the students. They used to come in, I'd, you'd ask them, well, why do you want to go to grad school? Why do you want a PhD? And it was always a very technical thing. I, I want to be a professor or I want to go work in a national lab come back four years later, they all want to do a technical degree, but almost to a person, and they'd say, but I also want to learn something about entrepreneurship, or entrepreneurship, or I want to learn something about public policy, right? There's a generation that is like demanding that the thing they do matter. And so I think there's a, if we're smart about this, we figure out how to get people into these positions like AAAS, where they have a technical degree, and they want to figure out how to leverage that at something bigger than just, research are bigger than just the science and technology component of it. So I I mean, I think there's a, and I think they come at it partly from climate change too. It's like, they wanna address it. I've been in lots of public meetings where you start to get nuclear meetings, you get questions from the audience. Older people, people of my age, they will come in with a very strong point of view, sometimes anti-nuclear, sometimes not. Young people are much more like, I care about climate change, no one teaches as much about nuclear in, in high school, so I don't know much about it, but I really wanna learn. And so I think there's a intergenerational thing going on here. I must and be of, young at heart. Yeah. And my, you know, my, <laughs> I, you know, it's kind of a weird thing to say, you know, but, you know, I think one of my goals in my career is to try to the extent I can to have less times when people like me are the public face of nuclear. I, I think that's actually good for nuclear.
0: For a nuclear guy, you're an exceptional communicator. Yeah, uh, thanks. To a non-technical audience like me. Yeah, thanks. Well, yeah, I, yeah.
1: this is my third podcast in, in three weeks, so. Hopefully I'm doing so you're all right.
0: warmed up coming in, yeah, yeah, yeah. so Todd, anything I didn't ask you that I should have or or any parting words for listeners?
1: No, I mean, I, th- I think it's a good set of questions. It's a good discussion. yeah, and I think it's um, you know for folks that don't know about nuclear but care about climate, I think that that's bringing them into a conversation. I think that's great. I think the fact that entrepreneurial nuclear is a thing now and it never was gives gives me hope or I might not have been as positive about the ability to get new products. yeah, I think it's it's getting as many. As many people into this conversation so that you are less and less likely, right, to have governments, whether it's federal, whether it's state and local, that don't want to address this issue. Right. And I think that's that's the key. And, and the more you bring people into the discussion, it's better. And so, you know, some things that you see is like nukes that badmouth solar and wind frustrate the heck out of me, right? Because people like solar and wind, right? And you may ultimately have a limit on how much you can use. But we're gonna use it. All right, so figure out how to partner, right? because it's about zero carbon and, and stop having silly, silly arguments that are unnecessary. Sort of focus
0: on the prize. Yeah, now from my, again, from the cheap seats over here, I agree with you. Yeah. yeah. Todd Allen, thanks so much for coming on the show. Yeah, no, thanks for taking the time. Appreciate you coming by. Hey everyone, Jason here. Thanks again for joining me on my climate journey. If you'd like to learn more about the journey, You can visit us at myclimatejourney.co. Note that is .co, not .com. Someday we'll get the .com, but right now, .co. You can also find me on Twitter at jjacobs22, where I would encourage you to share your feedback on the episode or suggestions for future guests you'd like to hear. And before I let you go, if you enjoyed the show, please share an episode with a friend or consider leaving a review on iTunes. The lawyers made me say that. Thank you.